Hi and welcome to Emerging Markets Today podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Ana Paula Picasso, and this is an episode about Myanmar, a country that's always been on the radar for me. I published some articles about Myanmar on Emerging Markets Today, but because my expertise is about Latin America countries, I wanted to invite someone that has a really good expertise, a very good insight into Myanmar. His name is Amit Jen. Amit is a Singapore-based consultant that helps clients navigate frontier markets and fragile states. And he's been to Myanmar quite a few times and has very good insights into the country's economic and political situation. It would be a shame if if, if Myanmar, after having come all this way, were to, to uh, you know, slip back into where it started from. Uh, it would be a real tragedy. It's an important country, a strategically important nation, 53 million people, and extremely hospitable people. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out EmergingMarkets.today and follow us on Twitter at Today Emerging. And if you want to follow Amit Jain on Twitter and LinkedIn, I'll put all the links in the description. Yeah, how are you today? How was your day? Oh, good. Good, good. It's been it's been reasonably busy, uh, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been okay. I've been on my desk uh, pretty much for most part of the day. Uh huh. Uh-huh. How's the weather in Singapore right now? Oh my goodness, it's extremely <laughs> hot today. Uh, it hasn't rained the entire day, and uh, and it's either bright and sunny. Yeah. So thanks for taking the time to come to Emerging Markets today. Uh, we had a quick prep call yesterday because uh, the reason I wanted to invite you to the podcast was because I came across your article about Myanmar on Asia, and I found it very interesting. And I also found out we have some friends in common within emerging markets, which is really good. That's right. Pleasure to be here. Uh, welcome, welcome. I wanted to invite you because I... I'm very interested in Myanmar. I had a few articles published on Emerging Markets Today a few years ago when Myanmar was starting to develop. Uh, it started to grow economically and yep. also about digital inclusion, mobile phones were becoming very um, accessible for the first sure. time. Well, I was thinking, shall we start talking about a little bit of the the past few years what's been happening in Myanmar with economic growth and then okay. you can uh, just give us an overview of the coup or what's happening right now and then after we can talk about what's next your opinion as an analyst what's sure. going to happen in the near future in Myanmar Absol- absolutely a pleasure uh, so thank you so much for giving me this opportunity So I've had the good fortune of traveling Myanmar frequently on projects. I'm a frontier markets uh, specialist based out of Singapore, but uh, I cover the region uh, and some other parts of uh, 
uh, the world uh, where investors uh, have less exposure to. So Myanmar's story, I mean, it, it really came into the, in, uh, the into limelight as far as the investment community is concerned after it started to make the transition to democracy sometime in 2011. And uh, it picked up speed after uh, Dao Aung San Suu Kyi came to power and started to initiate a series of market-oriented reforms. They, Myanmar is a very wealthy country, as you know. Uh, it has, uh, you know, really large deposits of tin, copper, gold, uh, jade, rubies. Uh, it's, it, it is blessed with natural resources. Uh, the problem has been that traditionally, uh, since gaining independence, uh, and more particularly after 1962, the first coup, when General Ni Wing came to power, Myanmar uh, really went into complete isolation, uh, economic isolation, that is. And, uh, and its, its growth story really begins in 2015. Uh, but before that, it started to initiate reforms uh, uh, in the two, from 2011 onwards. It is, it, up until the time of the coup, it had become pretty much the fastest growing economy uh, in uh, in Asia Pacific, uh, arguably, and certainly Southeast Asia. And what were the sectors that been growing in the country mostly? So the fastest growing sectors, uh, really, I mean, if you look at uh, the, uh, the the sharp increase in uh, the um, so, for example, as far as the FDI is concerned, so all of the extractive industry was uh, was getting a lot of attraction. Construction, uh, so urban construction infrastructure that had been growing extremely rapidly, uh, tremendous improvement in the quality of roads, uh, electricity, power generation. Uh, there's a, a you know, remarkable addition into, they added, a, they, they almost doubled their installed capacity. I mean, Myanmar produces something like about uh, three, uh, approximately, they have, they have an installed capacity of uh, of, uh, you know, uh, 5,600 megawatts, but they okay. basically produce about, about three, um, 2.5 to 300,000 3, uh, megawatts of power. Uh-huh. Uh, I could be getting my, uh, my, my figures wrong. Sorry. Yeah. And, and, and those are the sectors that are growing very rapidly. Telecom, of course, you have identified already. Yes. Uh, because uh, up until the middle of 2000 or early 2000, it had the highest uh, cost to acquire a mobile phone. SIM cards were super expensive. There was a, a state-run monopoly, very badly run monopoly. Uh, there wasn't much coverage around the, around the country. And until uh, then, they, they, uh, they gave the licenses out to, to foreign players in Urudu uh, and, uh, and Finnish, uh, uh, um, Norwegian, uh, or was it Finnish? Uh, uh, company, they, uh, they yes, really Telenor, to... yeah, Telenor, yeah, Telenor. I think, yeah, we have it here in Sweden, yeah, yeah. So, Telenor, and then, then there was no looking back, uh, um, at least as far as uh, you know, the cities are concerned. Uh, you know, network is still very, very patchy the moment you step out of main cities like Mandalay or Nepito mm-hmm. or, or, or Yangon, these are the three major cities. But when you travel the countryside, the, the, the network is not that robust, even now. Uh, there's a long way to go. So it seems that everything was looking up for Myanmar and 
Then a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago, this a coup happened. So could yeah. you just give us a quick overview of what led to this, uh, to this coup? You know, the international press has covered that uh, part of the question very extensively. And there are lots of rumors uh, and theories floating right. around. Uh, the person in charge is Minong uh, Liang. And uh, he uh, is, the, is the top uh, commander-in-chief uh, on, of the armed forces. And there is a speculation, at least, and the most credible one is that, uh, that he wasn't ready to retire. His retirement time was coming up and he was uh, you know, positioning himself to uh, be the president. And a lot of the power um, uh, play that happens in a country like Myanmar is behind closed doors. Even the civilian government uh, had to compromise in, the, in terms of trying to accepting the constitution that was laid down by the military and giving them more uh, room to play in policymaking, uh, providing them uh, you know, the key cabinet positions, the most important positions, and they, they, they played by the so the most credible explanation of the coup really is this is one man's ambition, uh, mm -hmm. General Minonglia. And, uh, and since he is the boss of the armed forces, the Tatmadaw, as they're called, uh, traditionally, the Burmese uh, armed forces uh, have shown cohesion. It is an institution that believes uh, its place in, in Burmese history is... Uh, is, uh, is permanent. Uh, it sees itself as a, as a guarantor of the unity of the country. You know, there are more than 135 different ethnic, ethnic groups in the country. Right, uh, historically, yeah. they've, not, they've not been able to create a very cohesive nation, uh, often at odds with each other, uh, and certainly at odds with the predominant population of the country, which is the ethnic Bamars. Yangon, as a, so, so the Burmese military, Tatmadaw, is predominantly run by the, by the Bamars. So think of them uh, as a modern institution uh, which, whose foundation is really goes back uh, uh, to the old Burmese kings where there's an elite and that elite will uh, run the entire country and they see themselves uh, as the guardians of, of, of Burmese culture, values, even Buddhism for that matter. So and that explains perhaps even now, and something that has probably been overlooked by people, of all the people, uh, the, you know, the, there's a cross-section of support for the protesters uh, across uh, the, the population in the country, right? From uh, the urban elite to uh, the, 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 the poor. There is one section, though, that is somewhat divided, and that is the monks. So there are some monks who actually do support the military and there are some monks who don't. Um, what were the reasons for uh, those, those monks that support the military? So, you know, one has to sort of get a sense of their position, their place in history. So the Burmese king uh, were big patrons of the Theravada Buddhism uh, uh, throughout the uh, different dynasties and throughout the century. Right. And the Burmese military, the Tatma Dao, has carried on that tradition. So, so you would see a, a lot of the former generals who then turn after they retire, they turn to the village and become monks and, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, and they are big patrons of many of uh, uh, the societies, the sanghas, as they're called, the the, mm-hmm. uh, the groups of uh, the coalitions. The, the, so sanghas are nothing but a group of uh, monk, Buddhist monks who, who who create um, uh, their followers, their followership around themselves, and so. So traditionally, so, so so the military men have paid their obeisance to to monks, uh, okay. and if you recall the saffron uh, protest of two thousand seven, when the monks came out on the streets, that compelled uh, the military to bend its knees and and uh, you know make room for what would to become the uh, the ultimate transition to democracy. So it was it was once they stopped supporting the military. That's when the military uh, kind of bent its knees. My guess is at this point in time, uh, there is strong divisions within the, uh, within the priesthood uh, in the country. I see, I see. Um, yeah, I didn't know this part. So there is some um, in financial interest behind there as well. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, it's patronage. It is, of course, it's, it's obeisance to... Uh, the religion, so Buddhism, you know, it, uh, it's, it's it, I mean, to a Western observer, it's an extremely peaceful uh, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, self-efficacing um, uh, uh, faith. Uh, mm-hmm. However, if you look a lot more closely into, into uh, the traditional, uh, you know, Buddhist values in places like Myanmar and to, some, to a lesser extent, Sri Lanka, uh, it can be, there is a strand of militancy within it. And uh, that plays out in its close sort of uh, cooperation and close linkages with the, the likes of the Tatmadaw, the, the, the Burmese military. I'm not saying the entire monkhood is behind of course, the, of course. Uh, you know, uh, but, but it's there one are... institution that, that, that draws, that draws uh, respect from all sections of the society. Yeah, there are this division. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, Amit, from the Western point of view, now here in the in the West, we only see what's on TV. But um, I think the difference between having a cook now with the age of smartphones and social media, and so everyone can be a, a journalist. Can okay, yes. can go on the street and make a video and post it. So we're not dependent on on the mainstream media that's true in the case right. of countries like that's Myanmar right. what's you know the government right. propaganda etc so how exactly. do you see that play out in today's global news how do you see that oh absolutely critical uh, so uh, before uh, the mobile became commonplace in Myanmar Myanmar was really like uh, I mean uh, Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was like a North Korea in the tropics. Uh, yeah. In other words, people didn't know what was happening in the next city, next town, next village, let alone the rest of the world. It was such an isolated place. Uh, they were not connected uh, um, uh, with the rest of the world. Yes, you could get radio news. Uh, uh, radios mm-hmm. were still around, but but for, for all practical purpose, uh, there was very little information that could flow in or out of the country and the the information that did flow uh flowed through grapevine and uh 
and uh, and the media outfits uh, that were based out of Myanmar, uh, but with with sources within the country with great difficulty. The Burmese military could perhaps get away uh, with the kind of uh, with the kind of atrocities uh, that it carried out uh, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and you know in the in subsequent uh, uh, in the in the in the nineteen uh, uh, nineteen eighty eight uh, yeah, uh, protests, yeah. but yeah. But 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 it would be very difficult for them to do it today, simply because most people are exchanging information through the mobile phones. So mobile phones have really connected uh, uh, um, a, a disparate uh, group mm-hmm. of people with each other. Uh, they're sending them, uh, you know, uh, people will be sending messages on how to avoid uh, the armed forces. They're coming in your neighborhood to warn other protesters who might be in that uh, street. They oh, would wow. uh, tell others how to protect themselves from, let's say, uh, tear gas. Um, we saw that happening in Hong Kong earlier. And, and this has become a flow, uh, the, 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 the free flow of information is really what is helping uh, the protest movement uh, uh, carry on its struggle, coordinating actions, uh, evading uh, security forces, uh, you know, asking for help, and of course, mobilizing global opinion. All this yeah. is is playing a big role. Pressure. Yeah, absolutely, it's, it's playing a big role uh, in what is happening in Myanmar. What the Tatman Dao could do if it feels that it is, uh, if it if it feels that it is at uh, you know is cornered, is that it could actually cut uh, the the internet connection, so at least slow slow it down to the point where it becomes really difficult for for uh, for protesters to to coordinate uh, that uh, it can do but, but they, i suppose it will also damage its own its own communication when if it does so so uh, so we'll, we'll we'll see how it all i think the international pressure is already there uh, everybody like you said it was a very isolated country but now there's open up and all the eyes Certainly here in, in Europe, I, we see the international press always reporting on, on Myanmar and actually showing horrible things on TV, you know, people being no, shot by the military. That's true. And, a, lot of, um, a lot of the... Something they couldn't get are... away before. Something they could exactly. get away before. Exactly, exactly. And, and so, so that plays... I mean, that will have... It's uh, yeah, it'll make it difficult for uh, uh, for the military to you know to use excessive force. Uh, but will it stop them from doing so if they feel cornered? I don't think so. Uh, the military is an extremely cohesive organization. In yeah. It believes uh, you know uh, if it feels that it is cornered, it could. There's nothing to stop it from using mm-hmm. excessive force even to the point of going back, if they want to yank the country back uh, uh, into darkness, uh, they could do so just to remain in power. Uh, one must not, one must not underestimate of them. Of course, will. of course, yeah. So, so how do you see this play out? What's next for Myanmar? How is your analysis for maybe the next couple of years or so? economically so, and society, the social impact as well. Sure, sure. 
So I see a couple of uh, uh, potential scenarios. First scenario would be a long protracted uh, period of instability where the protests continue and the military cracks down and it, it comes up, it pops up somewhere else, and the military cracks down again. And, and neither side is willing to uh, give room to any other. Mm-hmm. If the longer it goes on, the worse it will be for the economy, for the future of Myanmar, for, I mean, all the progress that Myanmar has done over the, over the last 10 years uh, could be reversed. Uh, it comes on top of, on back of, uh, you know, the setback that already had uh, with, uh, with COVID and now this. So, so this would be a, a, a very bad consequence of a prolonged sort of, one scenario is a, is a prolonged consequence. The other is that the protest movement sort of loses steam. It doesn't have a strong leadership. Uh, eventually, people have to go back to work. Uh, mothers have to take their children to school. Uh, kids, uh, uh, you know, uh, parents will get worried, uh, the children going out on the streets and, and call them back uh, and, and so on. And, and, and just the day-to-day uh, requirements and needs and comp- and the compulsions of everyday living will force um, a popular movement to sort of uh, lose steam. Uh, the military itself, uh, you know, on its own uh, can hold out for, for much longer. They have the weapons, the resources, the financing, and all these years of, uh, of, of managing, uh, uh, you know, their, their, the armed forces. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not going anywhere. Yeah. So. So yeah. that's the other scenario that could happen. And so that would be, that could bring back some kind of stability, but Myanmar will certainly go into isolation. Yeah, actually, we, you mentioned in your article, um, link there in the description, that we're, this instability is already impacting the energy sector with blackouts. Oh, absolutely. Through, yeah. So, 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 you know, uh, on, on the 5th of March, uh cities across Myanmar saw sudden uh, power outages, very long power outages. Uh, but uh, they said this was routine and there was some tripping and so on. But what it, what it sort of foreshadows is that a lot of the investments that have gone into, into increasing the, the, the grid uh, uh, in, 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 in the new installed capacity that has come into play it requires continuous investments uh, for maintenance, mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, power is something that requires continuous investments, uh, let alone an, an expansion of the grid, right? So now with the coup, uh, I, I cannot imagine uh, which investor with the right mind would like to take uh, risk and, 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 and continue uh, investing in the power sector. Um, there were, you know, uh, new contracts being laid out. Uh, the government of Aung San Suu Kyi had uh, had given out uh, uh, contracts for uh, gas to power uh, projects, uh, series of them to 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 uh, cover the gap uh, that had emerged over the years because the demand had outstrip started to outstrip the supply. But now, uh, you know, none of these, uh, these uh, I mean, I can't see them materializing uh, 
Mm-hmm. You know, if a power is something that requires very long gestation period, at least from six, anything between six to eight years to, to even oh, wow. break even, to even break even. It needs sovereign guarantees. It needs power purchase agreements. As it is, it was difficult for, for private sector investors to, to get that with the previous government, with the, with the government that was actually trying to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to bring in foreign players. With the military, they, you know, many of them do not have that kind of an expertise. Uh, you know, the Tatmadaw and its bureaucrats, the people who run things, they, they have shown that over the years that they, they are, they are cack-handed when it comes to running things like hospitals, providing public services, cleaning the streets and so on. So it's highly unlikely that, that the power situation will improve. And not to forget, a lot of the power projects uh, of, uh, plans were supported by, by development institutions like JICA, uh, the ADB, and so on. So there was a lot of development money behind it. With the international pressure now sort of pushing back against the, 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 the junta, how, uh, I mean, it, it is inconceivable that, that these development institutions will approve of those projects, at least in the short run. Uh, there would be a lot of behind-the-scene talk that is going that would be going on even as we speak right now to to make sure that the the military does not overstep uh, and 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 tries to calm things down. But but uh, but, but but we are in a very difficult sort of uh, uh, territory, uh, a, a slippery slope. Uh, uh, right now, as far as you know, it's concerned. Yeah, yeah. So everything was put into a halt right now, and every project, yeah, is all it? the big projects. Absolutely, all the big, all the big projects. Yeah. yeah, all the big projects. Yeah. Uh, but construction uh, has nearly come to a standstill in in Yangon. You mm-hmm. know, there was the special economic zone that was booming. Uh, Yangon was really expanding. You could see new buildings, new glass buildings, really modern offices coming up. Uh, real estate prices had, had shot up. Uh, uh, lots of the 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 expatriate uh, Burmese were coming back home to start new businesses, become consultants, and so on. Uh, now, where we are at this stage in Myanmar, many of them uh, would now be thinking of packing their bags and leaving. If they have not left already. Of course, of course, yeah, with all the instability. But Amit, are you optimistic about Myanmar in the long term? I know it's hard to say it because everything is, and something new is happening every day there. Um, but are you optimistic? So history will tell us uh, that brute force can remain in power for much longer than we give it credit for. Uh, you know, it, it, it has durability. I do have one hope, though, and that is the rank and file of the Burmese military. If anyone can change the trajectory of uh, the direction in which the country is, it's the rank and file of the military. They come from small households. They come from rural countryside. They come from uh, places, people, families, they all have brothers, sisters, and so on, who might be on the streets. Uh, and, and if the rank and file feels that the, their generals have gone too far and decide to not follow orders uh, as they are given, uh, and, and there is a, 
a kind of a rebellion of sorts, uh, an internal rebellion. And 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 the the group of uh, of uh, of senior army generals feel that uh, that General Minong uh, Liang has taken things too far, and it's no longer in their interest to back him. There is, uh, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of a counter coup. In other words, that a group of junta replaces their own leader with someone like like Tian Xian, who was uh, the the previous uh, the previous uh, uh, military leader who who oversaw the transition to to democracy, and and bring someone like him back. That would be uh, uh, would be something. If that happens, then I'm hopeful. If that doesn't happen. Then it's hard to say where where Myanmar goes from. Amit, now I want to talk to you about uh, yourself. You're a consultant. Yes, yeah, let's talk about yep. you. <laughs> You're yep. a consultant for uh, companies that want to make business in frontier markets and fragile states. That's right. How did you? That's... How does one become a consultant for that? How did you start? <laughs> It's a really it's, nice job. Uh, it, it's a really nice job. Uh, how it, did you? Uh, start? No, it, yeah. it 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 probably looks nicer than it actually is, uh, Anna. But uh, <laughs> let me let me tell you, since you asked me that question, so yeah. I've always been interested in in emerging markets and frontier markets. These are these are places that are close to my heart. I grew up in an emerging market myself. So I grew up in India uh, before I eventually moved to to Singapore uh, and settled here. Uh, and I. Feel that the that as someone, it doesn't matter which uh, area of specialization or expertise that you might have. Uh, the more frontier a market, the bigger impact one can make. So, delivery of public service, everything from delivery of public services uh, to private sector investments, they change. They can transform the the life uh, of, of 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 millions in a really short span of time if you become a catalyst. And that's really what got me to, uh, uh, to work in that area. So I started out as a journalist. I, I wrote about these, uh, these places uh, a whole lot. Uh, and, uh, and I then had the opportunity of, of actually getting some work uh, uh, from, uh, from one or two clients to begin with. Uh, so, and these would be typically be either be investors or even other consultants who would then assign me uh, work uh, to get some due diligence work done or go get uh, a, a competitive landscape uh, project mm -hmm. uh, in these places. And one thing would lead to the other. And essentially, the best way to, uh, to do this uh, would be to just go for it. Uh, get this, try and write more. Uh, so get your uh, uh, credibility, uh, if you can, build your credibility around the work that you do. Uh, with one client and move on to the next one and, and and so on and and if you're like me someone who works pretty much by himself you don't need a big team really uh to to get things going i have to be honest though 2020 has not been a fantastic year all our all our travel has come to come to a, a standstill and and that has impacted my work too but that hasn't stopped me from from writing about it and if someone wants to contact you how do they do do you have a oh, the best way to the, the best way to reach me is uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, which is Amit underscore Jen. That's J A I N underscore World. Uh, if you forget that, uh, look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, the best way to yes. uh, find me would be LinkedIn.com slash I N 
slash Amit dash Jan dash consultant, literally. So Amit dash Jan dash consultant uh, is where you can find me. I'm based in Singapore and, uh, and uh, all my contact details are uh, there uh, in my yes, contact put, info. I'll put the link in the description, your LinkedIn, your Twitter. If anyone wants to contact you, just click on that. And um, wow, it's been a pleasure, Amit. I know things are really complicated in Myanmar right now, but it was a very good overview you gave about the past. Thank you so much. And your analysis for the future, or at least how things are looking up now. And um, thank you so much, Anna. Maybe we do a follow up episode in a few months to see how things are going in Myanmar. So, I mean, this, uh, it would be a shame if, if, uh, if Myanmar, after having come all this way, were to, were to uh, you know, slip back into where it started from. Uh, it would be a real tragedy. It's an important country, a strategically important nation, 53 million people, and extremely hospitable people. Yeah. They deserve better. They deserve better. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So thank you very much, Amit, and I speak to you soon. Thank you so much, Anna. Pleasure.